It all began with such promise, didn't it? We experienced a little bit of that out in the courtyard. In drama school, they taught us never share a stage with children or with animals. Jesus breaks both of those rules. Children, donkeys, branches of palm. I mean, technically, there are no palm branches, actually, in Luke's retelling. There's just a bunch of cloaks strewn on the road. But we waive that point because we love a parade, and nothing says Palm Sunday like parading around the neighborhood to the accompaniment of a brass band. I hope the neighbors enjoyed that little, uh, little festival. Something like that festive atmosphere out there in the courtyard was probably what it felt like on that first Palm Sunday in Jerusalem. The people were rejoicing because they believed that Jesus was the one who had come to save them. They had seen him or had heard about these deeds of power and might that he was, that he was working around the countryside. Everybody in this story expects that Jesus will do something powerful. That's actually why they're there, right? That's why they've come to Jerusalem, to see the spectacle. They are demanding a miracle from him. After all, is he, not the, is he not the golden boy from Galilee? He makes the lame to walk, the sightless to see. He heals beggars. He raises up the dead. He teaches from authority, from his own personal experience. He confronts the powerful. He leaves them speechless. This is a man of, of great power. Great charisma. Everybody from, from kings to peasants expects that when Jesus comes parading into Jerusalem, he is there to conquer. He is there to succeed. The people expect him to impress them, and their leaders expect that too. Standing before Pilate, Jesus continues to hear these voices surrounding him, tempting him to work some deed of power. Pilate sends him over to Herod. Herod is hoping for a show. He's heard that Jesus is a great showman. He wants to see magic. And Herod is, is disappointed, I think, when he finds this short, scrawny Galilean hobo instead of the dashing magician he'd been expecting. Herod contemptuously throws this purple robe of royalty around Jesus' shoulders like, is this the best you've got? He sends him back to the governor. They lead him away all the time, hoping that at a certain point the moment will be right for Jesus to magically turn this thing around. The lawkeepers nail him to a wooden beam. They hoist him high on a hill for everybody to see. This is execution as public spectacle, just as much a public spectacle as the parade through the streets of Jerusalem. It is a, a horrible way to die, and the Roman army had perfected it. And still here, Jesus hears these voices. They're the voices that have been dogging him since the very beginning of the ministry, of his public ministry, since he first confronted this mythological figure from Hebrew folklore, Hasatan, in the desert, the one who said, Jesus, you can be powerful. You can be spectacular. You can be relevant to people. People will follow you. Do the mighty thing. Do the mighty deed. And here on the cross, the voices say the same thing. If you're really who you say you are, why aren't you doing something about this? How can your best solution be simply to take it, to endure it, the violence and the mocking and the shame and the humiliation? Jesus becomes almost a personal affront to those who are accusing him. How dare this man simply stand there? How dare he simply endure this treatment? How dare he so publicly embrace his failure? For centuries, Christians have struggled with this, this darker aspect of Christ's passion, the cross, as a symbol of failure. I mean, mostly we talk about the cross of Christ as a mighty thing, right, a victorious thing. We throw it up onto the pinnacle of the church steeple. We give it pride of place in our sanctuary. Some of us wear this thing around our necks. 
a symbol of victory, right? That's what we called it a few moments ago when we held up our palm crosses high. Let these branches be for us signs of his victory. That's what Matthew prayed. Grant that we who bear them in his name may ever hail him as our king and follow him in the way that leads to eternal life. But I am here to tell you, my friends, the way that leads to eternal life is a way that leads you to the foot of this cross. And it begins not as a symbol of victory. It begins as a symbol of the ultimate defeat. The way that leads to eternal life is like the way of downward mobility. And those of us who bear these, these symbols of victory in his name should be ready for this wild ride that the way to eternal life is going to take us on. And there's no real way around this, right? Whether we're Christians or not, life on earth gives us lots of opportunities to fail and to fail miserably sometimes. We don't get into the right schools, we don't marry the right person, we don't get the promotion, we yell at our kids, we talk behind our friends' backs, we hit send when we know we shouldn't, or we hit reply all and send the pictures to the entire listserv and die a thousand shameful deaths. We fail our parents, our teachers, our coaches, our pastors and our doctors and our therapists. We start drinking again when we know we shouldn't. We don't make the payment on time. We lose the house or the spouse or the car. We lie and we cheat and we steal and we smoke and we swear. And even if we're the, the good Episcopalians living some kind of stained glass existence to the rest of the world, my sense is that you don't have to scratch that far down in just about every one of us to discover that imposter syndrome, that sense that if the rest of the world really knew what we're thinking and feeling half the time, the jig would be up. The English quipster Quentin Crisp observed, if at first you don't succeed, failure may be your style. <laughs> I, uh, I think there's some wisdom in that. I say this as somebody who is pretty used to having things come very easily for me. I'm pretty used to succeeding. Maybe you resonate with this. School came easily for me. I knew how to have the right answer and impress my teachers and make all the other kids laugh. And most of the, the things that I dreamed about as a young man, right, this fantasy life that I sketched out for myself, happily married, settled down in a good job by the time I was 35, most of that actually came true, like right on schedule. I got a fabulous job. I got my dream job way earlier than I thought I ever would. I married this incredibly sweet man. We bought a house with a frickin' white picket fence around it. I mean, <laughs> talk about the American dream. Millennials are not supposed to have this happen to us, right? We are not supposed to achieve the American dream by the time we're 35. I thought I was set. I thought I was ready to enjoy the fruit of my labor under my vine and fig tree and coast my way into an easy retirement, right? That's what you're supposed to do in America. You win the game, and then you enjoy it. It turns out that getting everything you thought you wanted is actually not all that it's cracked up to be. What happened in my case was that almost as soon as I got my dream job, I started feeling listless and depressed. I stopped going to the gym, I stopped eating right. This was new for me, this feeling of just messiness. I started seeing a therapist, right, and I felt guilty the whole time, right? I have everything I wanted, my life is great, and I don't feel that. The other side of that beautiful life was this huge dose of imposter's syndrome. It's like this has all come too easily and it could all be taken away so easily. And I was having a hard time sleeping. So at night when I couldn't sleep, I would sit there 
thinking about all of the different ways that my life might end the next day. I wasn't actively suicidal. I didn't have a plan. I didn't want to kill myself. My therapist checked in with me on this pretty frequently. But I was thinking about it a lot. I was thinking about death a lot. I know now that there is a, there's actually a medical term for this phenomenon. And there are probably hundreds of thousands of us who experience this particular form of depression in various ways, at various times in our lives. It goes largely unreported and unremarked upon, because I think for a long time the kind of conventional wisdom was don't talk about that, because you might end up making it worse. You might start like planting ideas in people's heads. So we surrounded depression with all kinds of stigma, all kinds of shame. And it's like, I mean, it is like the ultimate American failure, right? Failing at being okay. But scientists and doctors and therapists are learning now that not talking about this is actually making it worse. We're creating a crisis in this nation because when we don't talk about this stuff, we lock ourselves into these isolated little boxes of shame. And shame kills people. I have been amazed. I have been humbled and awed since I first ta started talking about my struggles with depression a few years ago. I've been so heartened by the people who have sought me out to share their experiences with these dark midnight visitors that so many of us have. They say that misery loves company, maybe that's true. But I think it goes deeper than that. I think one of the things that keeps some of us afloat is knowing that we're not alone, that we are not irredeemably messed up, that people can and do live productive, sometimes even very happy lives in the midst of this particular kind of darkness. One writer I read likens it to floating on an ocean, right? Some days are unremarkable, I'm floating under clear skies and smooth waters. Other days are tumultuous storms, and I don't know if I'm going to survive. But you're always in the ocean. You're always floating. It was three years ago that I began to experience this particular mode of depression and, and failure in my life. These days, I don't experience the midnight ideation in quite the same way that I used to. The volume on that has toned down. I've learned some really good flotation devices, right? Go to the gym, eat right, talk with people, see a therapist. There are ways of coping. There are ways of coping. I know that it will probably come back, these voices in my head. And I think I'm ready for that some days, because I know who's got my back. I know what I'm coasting on. And the thing about failure that I have learned is is that when I stop trying to fight it so hard, when I stop telling myself that I'm not really experiencing it in quite this way, when I tell myself I should, you know, I should be lucky, I should focus on the positive stuff, when I stop running from it and simply learn to gently endure the darkness when it descends upon me, that's the moment, actually, when I discover that I am not alone, that there are actually a lot of us down here hanging out in the darkness at the foot of the cross, and to a certain extent, we keep one another buoyed. We keep one another connected to life. We look out for each other. We check in on each other. We know that it's, it's okay when you need to talk about it, and it's okay to not want to talk about it sometimes. We love one another through the darkness, and we make the darkness safe for one another. We make it even actually companionable in a beautiful sort of way. That's what Jesus' great failure on the cross enables, I think. His death makes possible this radical new form of community. When the story ends, when the body has been taken down from the cross, when all of the male disciples have gone running to the hills and have betrayed him, there remains at the end of the, at the, end of the story these women 
They're the ones, Luke says, who have been following him from the very beginning, from before the time that he was a glittering, successful golden boy from Galilee. They're the ones who will now proceed to wash his body. They'll take it very gently into their arms. They'll bathe it. They'll anoint it with spices and oils. They'll wrap it in a clean linen cloth. They'll swaddle him like Mary swaddled him when he was a baby. They'll lay the body in a tomb, in a cave, a place of darkness, a place of waiting. These are the ones, these women, are the ones who will come back at the first dawn of light on the first day of the week. They think they've come to prepare the body for burial. And what they discover instead is that this failure has been blown wide open that it's been turned inside out and upside down. They discover that, that nothing was as it was, nothing is as it was, that pain and grief and shame and fear don't actually get the last word. They become actually the first preachers in Christianity, these women. Their sermon is a sermon that most of the men in their circle never taught them. The women actually have to teach them this sermon because it's something that the powerful and successful rulers of the world don't know. It's a deeper story about what the other side of failure and defeat looks like, which is that shame and humiliation and failure is actually a doorway into something else, into a different kind of life, a, a different mode of being in the world. Failure, these women say, is actually that door, right? Sometimes it's the thing that starts you along the way, the way of the cross, the way to eternal life, not when we pretend everything is okay, but when we own up to the fact that nothing is okay. That's where Christianity starts, in that, that doorway of defeat, the space of enduring past your hopes. The women of Jesus' circle actually know that mode of existence pretty well. Life has taught them this well. It's probably not the first executed body that they have prepared for burial, these women. In Jesus' world, these women are the experts at survival. They even know how to thrive in the dark. And they still are. These women and the ones that they represent, they're like, they're like my teachers. They're the queer ones, the gender non-conforming ones, the ones who struggle with substance abuse and mental health issues, the ones who are not okay, the ones who need to experience healing for themselves, not once, but over and over and over again until they start to actually believe it. They're the ones. We're the ones who stand at the foot of the cross once everybody else is ghosted, standing in that space between Good Friday and Easter morning when all hope has died and all the consolation is spent. And we keep coming back. We keep coming back year after year, century after century, every time this story is told. Those of us who are not okay, who have learned how to dance with our failure, regardless of what our lives look like from the outside, we keep creeping back to the foot of this cross, this emblem of suffering and shame. And we come, I think, because we, we recognize something in its stark and honest lines, its refusal to shy away from the stuff that makes other people look away. It is not a symbol of victory for us. I'm not sure that victory is ours to claim. But endurance is ours. Redemption is ours. Grace is ours to claim. When peace like a river attendeth my way, Horatio Spofford wrote, when, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, 
It is well with my soul. He wrote those lines after four of his daughters died in a shipwreck. How do you get through to that place of endurance? How do you find that kind of peace? I think you start by embracing failure, not as a, as a symbol of your worth, but as a doorway into a different kind of grace. And so here we are, right? We're together, this room full of failures, standing at the foot of the cross, gazing up into its bitter majesty. That's what this thing means to me. It doesn't, it doesn't mean I have to be okay. I don't have to have everything figured out and buttoned up. I don't have to know what's going to happen tomorrow. It's enough to just be here, gazing with you, into the eyes of one who loved us enough to fail, to spend his very life to show us a different way through, that somehow through our failure and through our own defeats, we might be empowered to take that first step into the way of the cross. It's the way that leads to resurrection. It is the way of eternal life.